Hey guys, my guest tonight, Christina Ward, and I are going to be talking about how culture and religion play a role in the food we eat. We'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. Happy Tuesday. I hope you all are, you know, I hope all my buddies in Northern California are drying out. It's still a mess out there, I'll tell you. I was out driving today, and I mean, there's still down trees and everything else out there. Wow, what a storm. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. It may take us a couple days, especially now, because the freeways are messed up in a lot of places, the surface streets. But uh, the reason why is because California is this huge state. People don't realize how, how, big, how large the state is. So we not only have the beaches with the California girls and all that going on, we also have a lot of rural areas, mountainous areas, and things like that. So like I said, it might take us a couple days to get to you. However, in that case, we do have mediums on staff who could phone you. And if your situation is paranormal in nature, in most cases, they can. <laughs> it looks like I'm. It looks like I, my eyes are shut, but they're not. My camera's up above here. My screen's here, so this is why I'm. I'm kind of at an angle. Um, anyway, so they can call you. In, in 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 the majority of the cases, they can call me energy down until we can get there. It never. It takes more than one or two days for us to get out there. Like I said, there's people everywhere for the team. That being said. If you are watching from Facebook tonight, and a lot of you are, and you like what you hear and see, please be sure to hit that follow button. You know, we're looking to keep building up our followers on Facebook. And, and be sure to comment in the chat room and show me some love. Show, show, you know, show me some of those happy faces. Show me some of those thumbs up. I think I've almost got this. Look at that. I dang near got it this time. All right? So it's almost a heart. Look. It's a funky heart, but I finally got it this time. So, yeah, so it's it, and, and, and so put some hearts up there. Okay? Let me know how much you like the show, all right? Because what that does is it puts us up higher in the Facebook FYP for their master computer, and that distributes us out to more people who can hear us. Same thing goes for if you're sitting at your house, you got people that, um, you know, just have nothing better to do tonight. Maybe you're having dinner or whatever. Share us. Share us. That's a good little show. Share us. Same thing with YouTube. I've got 917 videos over YouTube, all this show. And I've started to categorize everything so you don't get overwhelmed when you go over there. But uh, we're always looking for subscribers over there, too. doesn't cost anything to subscribe. And I'm always messing around over, over the YouTube community page, you know, giving you guys messages, doing polls and things like that. So it's, it's, it's an active page. Same thing goes. Messages. Okay. Talk, talk amongst yourselves in the chat room. Show us some love, some hearts, and all that good stuff. And that will help us with the FYP over at YouTube as well. We are broadcasting tonight on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, TikTok, and uh, yeah. And if you want to find the team, very easy: Google California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team or California Haunts Radio, and we pop up everywhere. Okay. 
Okay, all that being said, I'm ready for this show. You know, over the holidays, you know, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, I decided to do something a little different because I wanted to see what the traditions were, the old the, the, the old traditions, you know, during these holidays. And um, we were able to go way past the uh, the pilgrims coming to the United States. You know, we, we went way past. We were in Greece. We were in all these places. And it was a really fun thing to do. And, and we were looking at the food, you know, how that's changed over the years for these, these holidays. And I happened to come across on the, on, on, on the other show. I'm not going to say my show, but the other show, the other guys. I happened to come across Christina Ward. And she has a book out talking about religion and food. And I thought it'd be really cool. It's kind of, you know, because it, it is a direct link to what I was doing in, in, you know, during the holidays. So I really want to get her on and talk about this stuff. Coming from a Mexican family, you know, uh, the King's Cake or whatever that other name for it. Um, we didn't do it very often, but uh, there's a tradition where they will bake a cake. And they will put a little plastic baby in there to signify the baby Jesus, or, or however that works. And if you happen to be eating the cake and you get that baby, next time there's a party or the following year when there's a party, you are the host. So that's that. That's a tradition over in Mexico, and that's something I got to witness firsthand with my family. So uh, yeah, so this is why I'm excited to have her on. Anyway, I'm going to shut up, and we're going to get this show on the road. Let's see who's in my chat room right now. Jerry Bazer. Jerry Bazer is a great chef fantastic cook love the stuff she makes hands down another person on my team linda fantastic cook so uh yeah i'm glad you're here jerry for the show all right so without further ado i'm going to bring uh christina in we get the show on the road all right here we go hello hi how is everyone tonight warm and not wet thank god <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, climate change is real. Uh, I'm in Wisconsin and it is February and we are looking at high 50s later in the wow. week and there's zero snow on the ground. So the world is changing. So there you go. You have California weather in Wisconsin. We got your weather. Right. Well, well, we if it was our weather, it should be snowing. <laughs> you know what's funny about when you talk about that? Sacramento, where I live, it gets too cold to snow. I'm hmm hmm. I'm going to question that as as a northerner. It's never too cold to snow. <laughs> but that's what they used to tell me growing up. Because all we get is ice. We get ice and, and and hail, but we never get. We very seldom get snow here. Yeah, that's an old that's an old myth. I mean, just is that it depends. I we could go into the science of it, but yeah, that that was an old myth. I remember we got told that to as kids when it was uh you know twenty below zero that it would be right. too cold to snow. <laughs> <laughs> but snow is snow, right? Right, and also you living in Wisconsin. My dad grew up in, in Cleveland, and um, he, you know, because obviously I, I'm about 20 minutes away from the mountains here, and he would always laugh because the snow was so white out here, and he'd say, "Well, you know what? If we were in Cleveland, give it a few hours, and it's going to be black snow." That's right. So anytime I see that, like even with my little village I built for Christmas, anytime I see that, I call it Cleveland snow because that was my <laughs> dad's you know thing. It's Cleveland snow. <laughs> Well, Cleveland and Milwaukee, where I'm from, uh, very, very similar, kind of similar culturally, yeah. uh, which is a great immigrant cities on the Great Lakes. Uh, so you've got the, this wonderful mix and diaspora of people and traditions and food. Well, tell me about you. How does one get into doing stuff on food? 
Um, well, I, you know, I have a, a few things that I do. Um, okay. I'm an yeah, I'm an independent food historian. Okay. Um, I'm also, I'm the master food preserver for the state of Wisconsin, which means that nice. I volunteer. I'm, I'm trained to make sure that no one is uh, accidentally killing anyone with uh, canned green beans, only, right. only on purpose. Um, so, and I also run a, a publishing house that some of your viewers, listeners may be familiar with. Uh, I run Feral House Publishing. Nice. Is a longstanding since 1989. Uh, we've published nonfiction and with an eye and a specialty towards kind of outro topics, meaning um, things that you don't always uh, see written about in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, your program, California Haunts, looks at some other things that are outside mm -hmm. the realm of accepted normalcy. So I'm a great skeptic, which I think that everyone needs to be if you're a researcher or historian or working in things is having a skeptical attitude is great because it's the thing that causes the why, the questioning mm -hmm. to happen. And that's how we find the answers when we start asking questions. This is true. This is true. Now you've written this book, of religions and food. And I'm really curious about this book because, like I said, over the holidays, I was doing, not, not similar, but I was doing something along that line, you know, looking back at, at, at the traditions and, and, and what they ate back then. So tell me about this book. This book's fantastic. Well, thank you. So it's part of it. Then my um, kind of real interest and obsession, this idea is, so it's holy food, how cults, communes, and religious movements influence what we eat. And it's the uh -huh. sub is an American history, because this is a very American story. The uh -huh. traditions that we have, that we bring to our families, and again, could only happen in the United States for a few very specific reasons, mostly because we have this First Amendment, that crazy First Amendment uh, that allows everyone to believe whatever the heck they want to believe. The mm -hmm. government cannot stop you from believing in anything. And because of that, we have uh, culturally developed um, some some interesting spiritual belief systems. Some based are rooted in what we kind of term traditional, traditional mm -hmm. like of the book, meaning Christianity, Judaism, Islam. But at the same time, because of uh, the United States and our great diaspora and mm -hmm. influx of different religious movements, we've got influences like on Buddhism. Jainism, Hinduism of all different stripes. And then when you start moving forward towards the late uh, 1900s, early 20th century, some of that interesting ideas call often referred to as the new age, theosophy, um, you know, the book of Urantia comes in later in the, you know, the early, early part of the, of the 20th century. So all of these um, traditions, these spiritual beliefs gets mixed together with what we're eating and they start influencing each other. And that's the start of it. That's the whole thing of well, how do we get here? Because I'm the person who, if you were, we were having a, you know, a dinner together, mm -hmm. I would be the person saying, wait a second, wait a second, let me tell you about those potato chips. So, cool. Cool, cool, cool. so instead of me, uh, you know, cornering people at the, at the corner bar, you know, I wrote a book about it. So you get to, to understand both the history of how the United States came to be um, mm -hmm. so open to different religions and different religious movements, and also why so many of these new ideas and these new religious movements started here in the United States. This is all, like I said, this is all fascinating to me because I know, you know we all know about the Jewish, you know, food traditions, mm -hmm. you know, the whole thing with the pork. 
But when you think about uh, you know, other traditions, what's out there? I mean, as far as, you know, as far as different traditions and how they do influence the food, like, like you, you mentioned, you know, um, the Middle East stuff and, and, you know, and things like that. How did those religions influence? What, what type of food are we talking about? So we're talking about almost every single thing that we put in our mouth has this origination in some sort of kind of the of a, a religious idea. So we go back to you, as you mentioned, not eating pork. Um, that's called the kashrut. Those are the initial rules as written down by um, early. Uh, Judaic followers mm -hmm. kind of they wrote it down, put the rules down. Now, if someone was following those rules, you would actually be really safe from foodborne pathogens. Mm -hmm. And so, these reasons for uh, prescribing or you know banning different foods have origination in both the spiritual and the practical. Uh, mm -hmm. So, not eating pork. Pork is a filthy animal, not externally, mm -hmm. internally. A lot mm -hmm. of pathogens um, are are inside pork. Um, our modern production methods help reduce that. But back, you know, thousands of years ago, you didn't have irradiation. You didn't even have antibiotics. You didn't, you know, barely had hot water unless you really purposefully, you know, made a fire to make the water hot. Uh -huh. So following these rules would help keep you safe. And one of those rules is, hey, don't eat that thing that's probably going to kill you. And uh -huh. in many cases, pork. Um, and when we talk about people of the book, so Islam adopted many of the same. So the rules that are referred to as kashrut or kosher are called halal in mm -hmm. Islam. And Christianity came along and early Christianity also followed some of the Jewish food rules. But as time and people moved and the, the mm -hmm. spirituality moved around the world, people adopted local customs as well as would kind of interpret rules differently. And that's when it gets really fun and interesting because uh, again, in the United States where you don't have to follow a state sponsored religion, where you're not going to go to jail. If you disagree with the leader of the church of your country, mm -hmm. um, you get to interpret those spiritual books, those uh, scripture much differently. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And that's how that's how that gets started. And so the same um whereas we talk about people of the book, the Bible, right. the Quran, the the Tanakh for the people um in Jews. Um in the Eastern traditions, there's other spiritual books. There are writings and interpretations, whether you're looking at the Bhagavad Gita, which is the collection of stories of the the Hindu gods, um, uh -huh. or you're looking at all of the koans and the writings about and by the Buddha, they all prescribe different ways of living because that was always the goal of that religion spirituality is to build your tribe, build your, you know, who is in your family, who's in that tribe and how do we identify them and how do we keep them and how do we keep them safe? So when we talk about this, can you give me an example of say like you mentioned pa uh, potato chips? Mm -hmm. So you invite me over for dinner, or I invite you over for dinner, and you're looking at my you're looking at my food and say I've got potato chips, mashed potatoes, you know, and maybe maybe a roast beef or, or something there. What what does that food mean to you as far as far as your studies? Well, it, 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 I say the potato chip joke. That's a very modern thing. Is it depends on what kind of potato chips. So okay. for example. Um, 
you know, who doesn't love kettle chips, the brand kettle chips? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are good potato chips, just from my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. Kettle chips, and we might move forward in time. Kettle chips are owned by the 3HO organization. That's Happy, Holy, Healthy, often really? known better by Yogi Bajan. Yogi Bajan was a cult leader in Southern California, starting in the late 60s through the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and he is a great example of, we can talk about these early food rules and these traditions born out of the spirituality and then see how it gets shaken up like a little snow globe when it comes to the United States as people um, take our first amendment and people take our tax laws and figure out how to make it work, not just for their believers, but for themselves. And mm -hmm. for that example, with the 3HO organization, prior to Yogi Bajan's death, death in uh, 2003, um, the, the companies that the church owned were worth over $10 billion. And that they didn't pay a lot of taxes on either because they were a church. Um, and so, and of course, we know that Yogi Bajan, we can honestly call him a cult leader because mm -hmm. there were accusations. He abused followers. He siphoned money. And when we talk about what is a cult, it's something, it's a high control group. So a group that is trying to control your, your physical autonomy, your body, what you're eating, uh, the information coming in, uh, your thoughts and how you feel. Um, now, every group has, you know, some sort of your bowling league, you know, is controlling your body by when you all wear uniforms. So mm -hmm. we're not talking about that level. It's when a group starts hitting all of the pieces on what's called that bite model is when you're in a high control group and you're in a cult. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Now, when you talk about crossover food, because you, you kind of talked about, you know, uh, the Jewish and the Hindu, you know, and the mm -hmm. that going on. What foods are, do we eat now at our dinner tables without realizing it? Our crossover foods like that? Filet fish from McDonald's. Really? really? Yeah. So, filet fish is if you look at the Christian and especially the Catholic tradition, uh, mm -hmm. pre, pre Vatican II, if you're, any listeners, watchers are older than you remember kind of going to Catholic school in the 50s or 60s, is it was according to the church rules. Uh, you could not eat meat on Friday. Yep. Right. And then the church also decided that fish wasn't meat, something different. So a McDonald's franchise over, owner in Buffalo, New York, one of the Great Lakes states, again, lots of fish nearby, um, noticed that he was losing a lot of business on Fridays because the predominantly Catholic community wasn't coming to the McDonald's restaurant because it couldn't eat the hamburgers. Mm -hmm. He proposed and invented this idea of having a fish sandwich and um, it caught on like wildfire. And so much so that other people who weren't beholden to these Catholic rules started buying them and eating them. And so now, of course, what, almost 60 years later or so, um, the filet fish is a McDonald's standard ubiquitous and people ordering them today have little knowledge that that is actually a crossover and originating in this Catholic food prohibition. And that was my next question. Um, as it was these, with these food traditions that, that, that we're doing, how far back do they go? From time immemorial, since people wow. started writing down or making some sort of even oral, just passing it down by story traditions, uh -huh. there were ideas about food. 
Um, mm -hmm. If we look to the belief of the Jains, Jains are what's called pre-Dravidian. It's a very old um, group of belief, group of people who uh, primarily were living in Southern Indian continent. Right. Um, and the Jains have a, a, through their belief system, a highly restrictive diet um, mm -hmm. that is informed by this idea of what they call ahisma, this idea that you cannot harm any living thing. Now that can be interpreted for the Jains who have been following this type of both spirituality and the food practice for, again, thousands and thousands of years. Um, researchers really even can't put pinpoint exactly when Jainism began. Uh -huh. uh, so if you're a practicing Jain, if you're a monk, Jain monk, you can't eat a carrot, for example, because it would kill the carrot. So not only are they vegetarian, almost vegan, they ascribed to a very almost just leafy greens and fruits only only foods that can be consumed without harming another living thing that's really interesting and there's people today that are again still following this diet that has been spiritually inspired and around thousands and thousands of years that's really interesting um when you talk about it and we had this you mentioned this about you know how some of the stuff that that happened like the different religions kind of got combined into other religions you tell me about some of that food oh absolutely and again that's great when it comes to the united states so we started talking mm -hmm. i was talking about jains and mm -hmm. the different hindu traditions so when that food comes to the united states which is primarily indian inspired so we're thinking about in the um say 60s and 70s a lot of these new religious movements and sometimes cults as a way to earn money for the group opened restaurants or bakeries or started a food business. And for example, I'll go back to Yogi Bhajan. In sure. addition to the potato chips, he started a restaurant chain called the Golden Temple. And it essentially did um, a really good job of spreading Indian inspired cuisine to first Southern California and then the Southwest mm -hmm. and then published a cookbook. So that, but it wasn't the type of Indian cuisine that you would like get in India. It was Americanized and they would serve other things too. So you had a restaurant that was serving this kind of Indian food with American mm -hmm. ingredients or American kind of traditional American foods with mm -hmm. a kind of an Indian twist to it. This, I, yeah, like I said, I find this extremely fascinating because I know a lot of Americans would not like a lot, a lot of the herbs they use over in India. I mean, there's so there's people that like curry, there's people that like this, but I mean, that's what you're going to get even with the Mexican foods because it all got Americanized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, it's funny. Um, I'm quoted in the New York Times today. There's an uh -huh. article about um, how did how did Tex-Mex food become ubiquitous with football in the Super Bowl? And it is these same patterns of kind of this American idea. You know, it's we're mutts, right? We've been from the words of Bill Murray from Stripes, right? We've been kicked out of every country. But that is our strength. And it is how our food gets uh -huh. um, made. You, you know, you, you mentioned that, that you come from a Mexican uh, tradition of family. Um, I come from a very American and Irish tradition. But when uh -huh. you go to, say, a school, like you're at school lunch, uh -huh. you start looking at your bag lunches. 
And it's oftentimes one of the first introductions for kids to this notion that there are other kinds of foods out there. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody might be eating the dreaded peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich, but someone else might have, you know, a samosa. And mm -hmm. it, it becomes that intrigue of, and that's how we, I think we become Americans is, is definitely through our stomach. And it is a melting pot. I mean, the United States is, is literally a melting pot. So you do have all those cultures, you know, mm -hmm. coming together for that. And I can see how I can see how that can work. When, let, let's talk about like the holidays a little bit because that's sure. what, that's what I was focusing on over the holidays. Anyway, what food has come across that that, that that that's a combination for 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 different cultural religions that we use today during the holidays? Well, I think one of the oldest ones, and you even mentioned it, is Thanksgiving itself as a holiday. Thanksgiving was started by um, fundamentalist Protestants who came over here. They were kicked out of all of their country, uh, the European countries, because they had state religions that didn't allow for this kind of very severe and interpreted version of the Protestant Bible. And they created this idea out of the tradition of both fasting to atone for sins and feasting to celebrate God's great uh, gifts. And it became this Thanksgiving holiday. And so those foods represented something for the people. First, you know, the fasting beforehand and again, the feasting to celebrate. So right there, that is a religious holiday that over time became kind of non, you know, non-secular and just American okay. holiday. The food was based on these, this very English tradition of say a roast goose, a roast, you know, a roast bird. Um, and when you bring it to America, it's a turkey because not the big fat turkey, but a wild turkey uh -huh. uh, based on what we had here, what was available. And so a lot of these, especially for the European groups that started, their recipes changed based on the ingredients. And so the tur uh, roast goose became a roast turkey. Uh, potatoes being a very new world, that's not so much, you don't see those in Europe, but that was, you know, America. We had South America potatoes. The Southern yams and sweet potatoes uh, came from Africa. All of those ingredients, all of those foods that we now use to celebrate Thanksgiving are both influenced by our specific kind of origin. Um, I know if I went to Thanksgiving dinner at my mother-in-law, my former, uh, my sister's mother-in-law, um, mm -hmm. which we'd go, and she was from Northern Mexico. And mm -hmm. so we had turkey and tamales. That makes sense. Right. And so, and that's what we do here is we take the traditions and we make them our own. And that goes both for food and for religion. Mm -hmm. This brings me to my next question. Native American food. Yes. Have we been able as Americans to incorporate that into our diets without realizing it? We do all the time. Um, corn, maize, you know, anything come from corn, that is a Native American dish. There's a fantastic movement here in, in the upper Midwest mm -hmm. to reclaim Native cuisine in a, in a way of um, there's restaurants that are only serving uh, Native food that would have been wow. available in the area. Um, mm -hmm. and so what you see is often to, you call the three sisters, that's corn, um, you know, and beans. Oh, and I just forgot the last one, but they grow together. And so mm -hmm. the grains are more native grains. Uh, so these are all things that got incorporated into becoming American food. 
Now, our health plays a role in this, too, as well, because I remember when I got diagnosed with um, congestive heart failure, I bought a Native American cookbook. That's what I did, you know, because I figured it was going to be a lot healthier. So was I right in thinking that, you know, as far as health being controlled by, by different foods that, that you could eat, you know, that, that, that went on years ago? Yeah, for Americans, um, w our diet is out to get us in a, in a way. Um, the the biggest failing is um, the processed foods and the amount yeah. of processed foods. So an, so de facto, going back to like a native, um, very primal eating style is healthier because right. it has less chemicals um, and less that. And there's a number of spiritual and religious groups too that were really focused on this idea of health. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists, for example, they took a small passage out of the Bible, um, mm -hmm. the, the familiar one about your body is a temple, right? Mm -hmm. You just got to take care of it. They interpreted that as meaning essentially your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And mm -hmm. so not only, you know, should you take care of it, you had to take care of it because mm -hmm. if you didn't, you know, you were essentially sinning. The Seventh-day Adventist diet is considered now one of the healthiest in the world. Um, it's essentially vegan, no, very little sugar, very little processed foods at all, and lots of, you know, whole grains and sure. vegetables and leafy greens. Now, when we talk about, like, the popular food that we eat now, you know, the stuff that's really popular, how much of that has been, I, mean, I, know, I know you mentioned McDonald's, how much of the food that we eat popularly, I mean, you know, like the roast beast and roast beast. Oh my God. The roast beef. I did not say roast beef, you know, and, and things like that. How much of that came over from say uh, religious backgrounds or cults? Um, a lot of, and it's a difficult question to like pinpoint because mm -hmm. we have that intersection of the culture influences the food, the food mm -hmm. influences the culture, the religion influences the food and the culture, and then they all swirl together. So if you look at a lot of the kind of food and the recipes from some of the earlier groups, it often depends on where their origination point was. Mm -hmm. Specifically, um, folks may remember or have been to what is now a national heritage site in Iowa called Amana, the place mm -hmm. where Amana refrigeration uh, was born. But it was also started as the home of a German cult. It was a cult. And, but if you looked at their food, it's very Germanic. Now, that group in Amana, they're called, they were related to the movement called Anabaptists. People may recognize that more as Mennonites, Amish, Hutterites. Now, you can still go and they've monetized that in Pennsylvania and Ohio, you can go to Amish restaurants or Mennonite restaurants and eat, you know, that kind of food. What is it? It's very traditional, very Germanic, and they haven't changed since really the 1800s too much about how they're eating. They've kept that intact. So to go along, they've also are the folks who brought us potato chips, um, kind of as, as the maker, they kind of invented potato chips. Cool. Um, and so these like, so anytime you're eating like a ginger snap, a ginger cookie, when you're eating, you know, the kind of roast kartoffel with, you know, potatoes with bacon and stuff, that's coming out of the German tradition, out of the Anabaptist Mennonite and Amish tradition. And that's how it spreads around. I just find it fascinating that, you know, but of course, like I said, we're a melting pot here. So my taste may not be where your taste is, you know, 
for food. But on the other hand, it, from what you're saying, is that this food that, that we're eating was all based on religions and cults. And we're just kind of modifying it for, like you say, our culture. Yeah, we modify it for our culture and for our particular taste. Mm -hmm. And that when you get into very specifics of some of the, the groups, especially some of the smaller groups that were very high control, um, the food reflected also the taste of the leader. Uh, for example, uh, Hare Krishna cuisine, and people may be familiar with that, especially, you know, because Hari's had like the Sikh have an open door policy on Sunday afternoons. You can go get either a free or very low cost meal. In the Hari tradition, it's Indian, but it's not quite Indian like you would think or taste because Prabhupada, the founder, had a sweet tooth. And Krishna, the, as the god, is represented as a very naughty, hungry boy with a sweet tooth. And so all of the Krishna recipes, all the Krishna food has extra sugar in it, extra sweet. So, and that was, that's personal taste. That's how, so even so, is something as simple as just someone's personal preferences can start influencing how a group develops their cuisine and then how that spreads out throughout the country. Jerry put a note in the chat room saying that succotash was Native American. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Jerry. Yep. That's lima beans and the corn. Those are all Native foods. So you think people are aware of this, you know, like 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 the the Gen X's and the millennials, you know, coming up. Are they aware that that that, that all our food is based this way, or, or or is it one of these? Okay, I love my burger. I'll take it for granted. Out the door I go. I don't think so. I don't think people are aware, which was one of my motivators for writing the book, so I didn't mm -hmm. have to like again stop people and say, wait, wait, wait. Let me tell you about those little debbies. <laughs> so. <laughs> and how long does it take you to research this book? Um. About five years actively. I mean, you know, it, it, it was always something I was interested in and had, mm -hmm. you know, been reading about. But about five years of actively researching and interviewing um, and papers and reading and, and traveling to a little bit to go and, mm -hmm. and interview people, um, you know, on site. Was there anything in particular that surprised you when you were doing your research? The interconnectivity between not just the groups from way back, but even the modern ones. I mean, and what I mean by interconnectivity is that many of these, especially 20th century, uh -huh. these cult leaders, they knew each other uh -huh. and they kind of exchanged notes and recipes and, uh, you know, taught each other and they took notes from each other. <laughs> and so th that was uh, my big takeaway and surprise is how interconnected, even so much as when we think about um, even further back, the Mormons, Latter-day Saints, uh -huh. and had a connection to the Seventh-day Adventists. They, the, so William Miller and Joseph Smith knew each other. Interesting. So are there written records of, the, of, of these different food recipes or has this stuff been passed down word of mouth? It's a combination of both. A lot of the uh, groups would start publishing cookbooks and they act, those cookbooks acted in two ways is if you were a new believer and oh. needed to follow these rules, it helped to have a cookbook um, to help teach you how to follow that group's rules. Uh -huh. The other thing was that they could sell them and monetize it. It was another way to bring money into the group. And so people who were, and very famously, especially in the fifties and sixties, people who were interested in say eating vegetarian or vegan when it wasn't 
you know, mass popular, knew that if you picked up a Seventh-day Adventist cookbook, you didn't have to believe in that the religion part, but you knew those recipes were all going to be vegetarian and vegan. And so that was another way that way of eating helped spread throughout the country. Um, when you were looking, uh, doing, when you were doing your research, because that's a lot of research to do, and yes. you know, you, you with the background you have anyway to do it, but um, did you have trouble finding, you know, finding these things? Was was it difficult to get? No, not at all. Once I started doing the research, and once you start like peeling the onion back, uh -huh. you find more and more, and again that interconnectivity, and uh -huh. where. Um, you know, it's very much like the, what the John Carpenter movie, they live, you put, once you put those glasses on, you see uh -huh. them everywhere. And for uh -huh. me doing all that research and, and the cookbooks and they just led to more. So I, I started seeing it everywhere and noticing it much more. I would think so. And then as you're going out to eat or over to friends' houses, you know, you're looking at the food, you're thinking, Hey, there's roots to that going back to the Amish. You know, there are and so much. So is recently, um, our local food co-op. Uh -huh. um, they have a small deli and restaurant attached to the co-op. They were advertising their special sandwich of the week, the Golden Temple sandwich. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, that is from Yogi Bajan's Golden uh -huh. Temple cookbook. And uh -huh. I messaged them and said, hey, did you, where did you? And they looked in their archives. And sure enough, they started making that sandwich in 1981. And enough time had passed. They had the current people making it, or they had no idea that that their very popular sandwich had these roots from this very specific cookbook that was published by a cult. Right. So I think probably there's, there's a lot of that now. I mean, even me making my own dinners, I don't realize that, you know, that with, with whatever salad I'm eating or whatever vegetables I decide to use or fruit, that there's a link that goes way back on that Sure. I mean, anytime that we think about, it goes back to even apples, apples in the United States, when we all in grade school may have heard the legend of Johnny Appleseed. Uh -huh. um, Johnny Appleseed wasn't just a nice guy, you know, spreading apples around. He was a Swedenborgian. He believed in, you know, that the Swedenborgian idea of mysticism, which was also, um, they believed in a, that Ahisma idea they took from the Jains of uh -huh not to harm any living thing. And if anybody is familiar with like, you know, apple and orcharding is a lot of times they're grafted. They're taking a piece of one tree and you're, you know, putting it, cutting it and putting it onto another tree uh -huh. from Chapman, John Chapman, his real name, um, the Swedenborgian point of view that harms the tree. And so what his specialty was, was he had developed a system for, for growing apples from seed it, which is a little more complicated. Uh -huh. And so that was part of his mission. He was walking westward, you know, the great Western frontier, which was about the Mississippi River, and teaching people about his beliefs of the Swedenborgians and how to grow apples from seed. Well, you know, America being the melting pot that it is, I can understand how, you know, all these foods or all these food traditions, rather, came up, you know, came here. I mean, because you've got the British... Like you say, you know, the pilgrims, you know, coming in from England, you've, you've got people coming over from India, you've got people you know, from all over the world. And so I, I, I perfectly understand how all these traditions could get meshed in together. And the next thing you know, you're Indian taco, right? There's another Indian taco at the fair, right? And you know, know, things like absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I love seeing that is, you know, you can go to the grocery store um, mm -hmm. and in, you know, see a curry pizza 
I love seeing that kind of fusion. Uh, you're out in California on the, the West Coast. There was the very early migration from both Chinese and Japanese people. Oh, okay. And they brought with them traditions of Buddhism. And those Buddhist traditions and the Buddhist food traditions yes. definitely got incorporated. What we know, what we kind of call, quote unquote, California cuisine, mm -hmm. started from the San Francisco Zen Center. It was that the the California, the San Francisco version of Soto Zen, they started monasteries. They Those people who then were in that monastery, in that group, then started restaurants and farms. Mm -hmm. And from everything from Thomas Keller's Per Se to Alice Waters, all of that, you wouldn't think has a religious connotation to it. But again, they all are come from the San Francisco Zen Center. Wow. And all the time that, that, that you've been studying food and working with food, what is probably your most favorite thing to eat? Uh, I have a sweet tooth too. Okay. So I am, I, I've got, you know, so I'm a fan of cake um, mm -hmm. and cookies. And the first pass, uh, my editor looked through the recipes that are included in the book. And the first thing she noticed, cause I didn't, wasn't paying attention was mm -hmm. they were almost 75% desserts. <laughs> so <laughs> I cut a lot of those out. So that's one of my favorite things to eat. I am always on a mission to find like the perfect kind of cookie. I love mm -hmm. a really, really well done kind of interesting cookie um, as well as cake. Get, give me a beautiful like lemon, a lemon cake. I'm I'm right there. I'll I'll eat more of that than anything else. I'm a lot like that, too. And I remember going to Europe as a kid and, you know, the, the, the chocolate bars here. Oh. Not even close to what's going on over there. And I remember how fun it was because people would give me candy bars because I, I was like eight, nine years old and they were all Swiss chocolate. Brought over from Switzerland. Oh my God. It was so decadent. good. Absolutely. So good. I went and had a meeting this morning at our lo a local coffee shop that happens to uh, be owned by a, um, a family originally from Mexico that they're, uh -huh. they're coffee growers. And um, I don't, I should stop going there because they make fresh churros. Nice. Um, you know, people have probably had churros, but you know, but when you get them fresh, just made, nothing like it in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Other than sweets, let's talk about <laughs> Other than sweets, what is probably your most favorite food that, that, that you have tried? Um, I am a, um, I'm a vegetarian. Um, okay. and so, um, that it comes to, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, just really like uh, kind of Italian kind of that lasagna, a really nice roasted vegetable lasagna is one of my personal favorites. Um, I love a really light curry, just, you mm -hmm. know, your basic, like a vegetable curry or a aloo chat. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I think it's hard for me to pick a favorite. I like food. I like to eat food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are the ones that pop off the top of my head. I think the one for me, when I talk about Italian, I usually have eggplant parmesan, but my favorite is roasted garlic. Fantastic. Roasted oh garlic God. with uh, just smeared with good olive oil and on a piece of fresh bread. Oh. Yep. Oh my God, it's to die for. It's the best. I actually learned how to make it. So once in a while, I'll go buy garlic cloves and do it myself. But there used to be a restaurant out here in Davis that used to make it. And oh God, that's all I would order. I would end up ordering devil that I smell like garlic forever. <laughs> and, and we, we just, say that like it's a bad thing. Yeah. And it's just so good, so good. Um, 
in writing this book, and it's fascinating because I'm, I'm in the process of writing my own book about you know my, my host adventures and stuff. It's a lot of work to write, and people don't realize how much goes into it as far as writing. When you initially started, what country did you did you start with, or or how did you just decide to pick what you know pick and choose whatever you started with and then continue on through it? Well, so um, it you know this is the the struggle of trying to write something and write something that is you know research nonfiction, so not just a story you get to kind of follow along. I had a friend describe writing a nonfiction book essentially as like having homework every night for a year at least, <laughs> and you can just imagine how miserable that would be. Yeah, but the ideas are there, and you feel compelled to get them out. I struggled with with the question you're asking about how do I organize this? How do I tell this story? Um, and so for me, the focus after, you know, sifting all the research on how to tell it was to focus on the United States because that's really where the story is. So once I made that decision, then I knew I could follow a semi-linear, you know, a linear narrative. And so I didn't talk about every single cult and new religious movement in the United States. That would have taken me a lifetime. Uh, what I chose to do was write about the groups that were the best examples of the, the overarching story. Like I'm talking about the big ideas and you and I are talking about like, we come to the United States, we're a bunch of people from different places, eating different foods and believing different things and mixing it up. And then for the book to organize it, how do I tell that story in that makes the points I want to make about it in a way that's enjoyable for readers. And once I made those decisions, then things started to fall into place. But it's not easy. Again, my editor who pointed out my overly sweet uh, recipes gave me, after a first draft was like, gave me the big note of like, what the heck are you doing? Mm -hmm. Except that that H was a different consonant. <laughs> I think you would be fun to go to dinner with. I, I, I like food. I like talking about food. So yeah, dinners are always fun. It's I would to, I would sit there and pick your brain the whole dinner. Like, where did this come from? Where this come from? Where did this come from? It's a joy, and that is always um, a point for a lot of defining thing for the groups. There are some groups that look at food as a joyful expression of their spirituality, of mm -hmm. God's love for them, and there's other groups that look at food as punishment. Is that we, you know, you need to restrict it. Or, you know, consume it in a way that is harmful to your body. And like you've been saying, you know, I grew up with Turkish friends down my street. And so I got to know the food, you know, that they ate. And then as I started to go out more, you know, looking at Greek food and looking at different food, different restaurants, even Russian, there are some links between all this food. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's links that the cultural links and the geographic links and just, you know, there's we talk about um, like things like a layered salad, something so blasé. But then when you start breaking it down, as a food historian does, you go back to like you can go back to ancient Rome and this idea of layering different foods. And then when we think about that, then you get to the beautiful like the Russian Ukrainian herring under a fur coat. What it's like, you know, fish like salad with mayonnaise, right? right. Um, and down to like the seven layer dip, you know, mm -hmm. those are all born out of that same originating concept that you can trace back to the Roman Empire of, you know, salagumi, the, the layered salad. And so I find it fascinating and interesting to um, find out where we are more alike 
as well, people than where we are more different. Absolutely. That's like I said, I mean, and that was an eye opener. You know, yeah. I grew up with that food and then seeing it as, as a Greek meal or even or even stuff like at a Russian restaurant that compares to that, just like I'm half Hungarian as well. So when I go to a Hungarian restaurant, you know, and they've got Czechoslovakian food and things like that. It's all similar. Yeah. It's all similar in nature. I, I just find it so interesting. With slight differences. It's one of those things is like I talk about a little bit is one of the, the ideas is the idea of communes, of people living together, sharing, especially then religious communes. One of the early theorists of kind of just conceptualizing what is the ideal commune is Charles Fourier who was writing mm -hmm. in the um, very early 1800s. I bring it up because it goes to your point about he proposed that instead of fighting war, as a physical military thing is that countries or regions in conflict should actually just have a cook-off. Mm -hmm. They should each cook their favorite best cuisine representing their country. Mm -hmm. And then everyone eats it and then votes and decides, and that would be the winner. And I think, um, people would be, uh, more happy to go to war if it was just about, you know, top chef. Absolutely. So do you think, like I was mentioning earlier, because people don't realize the origins of their food. Mm -hmm. Do you think that a book like yours and, and, uh, will, is going to bring out that in people for people that are interested in that, that they could actually learn about their food? Do you, do you think there's a, I'm not going to say call it market, but do you think there, there's an interest there for people to learn about their food? I think there is. Because, well, it's that combination. Everybody eats. Um, so we're all interested in food and where it comes uh -huh. from. And people love learning about cults. The people love learning about like the most, you know, the fringe types of religions and those cult movements. So I do think that um, there's just a basic interest in that people will want to know. And if people do read the book, everybody's going to take something different away from it and will recognize either their own family behaviors uh -huh. and where their food comes, or they'll recognize someone else's. I've had a few people come up to me um, after listening to me talk or uh, read, read the book and go, Oh, I had no idea. I was in a cult growing up and I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been one of the bigger takeaways. People are people realizing that they may have been in a cult. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. What makes your book stand out from everybody else's book? You know, so like other historians. Um, my approach is I'm a working class person. I mean, uh -huh. coming, I'm coming from the working classes. A lot of times people writing history are, writing in this very academic way and but not writing for people to actually read it i use academic rigor um i'm not a, i'm now no slouch as a researcher um but my writing i'm writing for people like you and the listeners because i want the joy of it the people we're people in and of ourselves, we're interesting. We have strange habits and very fascinating histories. And why wouldn't everyone want to learn about those things? And I think that the biggest barrier is that people who are historians aren't writing to the people who really would want to be reading it and who are interested. Well, like I said, I, I read your book halfway through. I ran out of time. I got sick. We made all this, but I mean, there's some really, really cool information in there. And to me, it's an eye opener. Thank you. And maybe, maybe it's a way for people, you know, get five, get this book, you guys. I mean, it's a way to really, because you'll never look at your your dinner the same you know, <laughs> if you wear this book. And I, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing to keep that, you know, to keep those traditions going. 
I think it's great to keep the traditions going and also understand that, you know, our, what we call traditions are always growing and changing and morphing. And so you get to start building your own traditions as well. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I remember my mother, because we had, a, uh, my grandmother gave me a uh, Hungarian cookbook. And I remember my mother couldn't do some of the stuff just right. But I remember when she made her, the, the, you know, the, the chicken and dumplings, how her dumplings were so good because a normal Hungarian dumpling, it's, it's small. You know, it looks, looks like little noodles. But my mother somehow would make them look like little baseballs. Ah, okay. And they were so good because, you know, they were flour and they were, you know, fried or fried or whatever she did to them. But it was just so good when, when you bit into them. I'll never yeah. forget the dumplings. So she was making a very, instead of going the Spetzel route, she was going the right. local route. Right, she, right, right. Yeah, no, and then that's fantastic. You get, to, and again, you get to change up things on personal taste. It's always with the dumpling question. I can always tell somebody's kind of how they grew up, what they ate is when you say dumplings and you just ask sinkers or floaters. Right. <laughs> I never thought about that. Never thought about that. Well, it's just like cucumber salad. I mean, you see cucumber salad in a lot of places. And what 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 are the roots to cucumber salad? Because I know the Hungarians do cucumber salad, but do the Germans and the other places do it? Um, it's more Central Eastern European than Western okay. European. So you'll see, you definitely see it in like Czech. Uh, Czech cuisine, Polish right. cuisine. Polish is, you know, um, a lot of with cucumbers. One of the reasons why cucumbers, cucumbers grow fast, which uh -huh. is important in um, cold regions. So uh -huh. vegetables that grow quickly are vegetables uh -huh. that people are going to eat because when you have a short growing season and, uh -huh. and um, that area of Europe also has like a pretty good um, access to water because cucumbers need a lot of water. So you're not going to see that type of cucumber in a very dry climate. So the combination of that in the tradition and keeping cows um, and drinking milk, um, being milk, milk and cheese people. Um, whereas like if you're in a different area of the world, you, you don't have cows for dairy. It's so again, all of these ideas and, and um, you also have religious beliefs around specific animals and cows and who is drinking what and who's eating what. So again, all of those things start mixing together and you've got something as simple as cucumber salad, which is at its most basic, cucumbers, oh. onions, um, uh, sour cream, and usually salt and a little dill. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So you've, you've written this book. There's probably a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more recipes out there in the world. Do you feel like you well, you that did you want to write a follow up or is this it? <laughs> well, I'm laughing because this one took um you know five years and I oh. promised uh, my family that I was not going to start any new books or new projects for at least uh -huh. a year, just uh -huh. to give I needed to give my brain a little rest and it's uh -huh. so it's still in its resting mode, um so I haven't planned for any new projects yet. But to your specific question, are there enough recipes and groups mm -hmm. and stories? Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. There's so many interesting little rabbit holes to go down. Now, what food, you know, what, what culture? We'll just do that because we're almost done here. So it's almost been a whole hour. Yeah. Um, what culture fascinates you the most food-wise? Um, I think, you know, when um, I'm going to talk, I'm going to say, and and. I'm off the top of my head. I think Japanese cuisine 
-hmm. because Japanese cuisine is, is very specific to the region and technique and mm -hmm. spirituality, both in Buddhist and what Shinto in the mm -hmm. Shinto traditions, which is essentially an animist kind of an ancestor based religious belief. And so that it, it's so precise. There's a lot of precision involved about you can only eat this type of melon during this specific season. You can't eat it at any time of the year. You can only eat it in this condition when you're honoring this holiday for this ancestor festival. So that to me is really fascinating because it's so hyper-specific. Okay. Last question for you is you're on the strip in Las Vegas. Oh, why? <laughs> I know. I know. And you have a little shop with your books. And there's other people who are, who are trying, you know, who, who have written similar books. How do you get people to buy your book? I guess um, I, if I was the carnival barker out in front, I would oh. use the tagline we started using, which is, does God have a recipe? <laughs> Find out. Come on find out here. Absolutely. Now you just kind of answered this other question was what's next for you, but. Well, I mean, I can answer that in a different way because as I mentioned, okay. I run Feral House Publishing. So when okay. I wasn't researching and writing my own book, I am editing and acquiring and working with people um, because we're publishing other people's books too. So, uh -huh. so upcoming, we've just had one that recently came out um, called Lemuria, um, the, a true yeah. story of a fake place. Um, and we have one coming out. We're just working on, just did, got the cover finished, um, called weird Umentary. I'm so excited about this. It's a fun one about the history uh, of all of those great 1970s documentaries that were on UFOs and nice. pyramids and Bigfoot and all of that stuff. So those are ones, but we also do a lot of, uh, books on music. Um, and micro history, which are, you know, small historical uh -huh. things. So uh -huh. that's what I'm working on now is getting some caught up and getting some more good books out into the world. Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to have to get involved and get a hold of you over, over that last one. Yeah. Send, last send me an email. Yeah. We'll start sending you some books. Yeah, that would be great. Oh my God. To talk about that. All right. Well, um, this was great. How can people find you? Um, you can find me. I have a, a website, uh, christinaward.net. Uh -huh. um, otherwise you can go to feralhouse.com and send uh -huh. us an email through feral house. And you, then you, if people go to feralhouse.com, they'll see our almost 40 years of publishing and all the books that we've wow. put out in that time. Fantastic. Christina, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. Learned so much. I could sit here and pick your brain for hours, but well, thank you. It's so much fun. I love talking about food and uh, kind of weird religion. So this is my happy spot. Well, you have a great rest of the week, and I will definitely be in touch with you about you, about that other book because that one sounds fascinating. Thank you so much. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you. All right. That was absolutely fascinating because I love talking about food and stuff and the history of food. Tomorrow night, um, I'm taking the night off. I have a friend who's taking me out for my birthday dinner, for my second birthday dinner, so I'm not going to be here. I will be reading from the True Ghost Stories book uh, ahead of time, so it'll be a pre-recorded thing just to let you guys know. But uh, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really appreciate it, and I hope you had as much fun with this as I did, because, wow, 
this was really, really cool. So I'm going to let you guys go. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you despise the show, share it with five of your enemies. <laughs> We're equal opportunity here. Again, just trying to get the word out about my little show and then get things rolling. But I really appreciate each and every one of you. And I know the RSS feed, we're going to have quite a few listeners on this. So ahead of time, thank you, RSS guys out there at Apple and uh, and iHeartRadio and all those places. And thank you guys as well that have stuck with me for the last four years doing these shows. We're definitely, you know, starting to get things rolling. And I'm really excited about it. All right. uh, Here's the end. And I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, Well, not see you tomorrow. I will be live again on Thursday. Okay, because we've got a great guest set for Thursday. So uh, be sure to uh, join us on Thursday for a talk about dogmen and things like that. All right, guys, I'll see you and uh, have a great evening.